All right. What's going on, y'all? Hope everybody's well. Let's see. As we get it going today on June 16th, I hope, hope everybody is having a good week. Um, heading into Juneteenth. Um, let's see. Got a few people coming in. I'll give people some time to come through. But uh, it has been a good week and getting things in order, feeling uh, healthy and strong. And I hope that you are as well. Uh, See here. Okay, looks like everything is going. What's good, Abdullah? Hope everybody is is well. Um, Welcome to the Onyx Report. Um, Featuring myself, as it were. Uh, Let's see. All right, there we go. What's up, Mark? Um, all right, preemptive happy birthday to you. Um, welcome to the Onyx Report, though, where black male justice advocates uplift black men and boys using critical analysis. Today, we're going to have an interesting discussion where we look at what that looks like in an era where um, Africana studies, my, my chosen field, uh, is in play. What happens uh, with black males, what they grapple with. Uh, so we'll get into that uh, in a moment, uh, but I want to give people time to come through. So it looks like it's kind of a slow moving day. We are broadcasting today on innerlightradio.com as well as Facebook and YouTube, of course. So uh, you can catch us on any of those. And as usual, my weekly shows will be uh, posted to iTunes as a podcast. So you can look up the Onyx Report, with Dr. T. Hassan Johnson there. And you can listen to past podcasts. I don't put on my daily show, but you will find my weekly shows on iTunes. Other than that, you can come to my YouTube page and check out the daily shows where I cover a wide variety of topics. That is the uh, Black Masculinist News uh, for the day. So you can check that out. Usually I try to do that at noon Pacific. uh, Pacific, uh, And it's usually a fairly short kind of hit. What's up, Ron? So uh, you can check into those, hopefully. That will be something you're interested in. Today's subject, though, is a little close to my heart and has a lot to do with, um, you know, my chosen field, as I said, and something I've invested nearly 30 years into. So we'll get into that. What's up, Kwaku? Hope everyone's uh, good. Uh, You can also, you know, support the show by uh, donating. You can like, share, subscribe, join and donate. So please consider doing so. Uh, You can see on the screen, the Patreon, the Cash App, the PayPal, and the Venmo. I will also put some information into the comment section so you know how you can go about supporting the show directly. Um, And that will hopefully be something that you will consider doing. You can also go to um, YouTube and right below, um, put, uh, put it on the screen. So you can see it there for those of you who are watching. Uh, Brother Malika, appreciate that support, man. I hope you're well. Um, yeah, so you can become a member. Click the join button right next to the subscribe button right there on YouTube below the video. Uh, and from there, there are different levels of membership. You can choose the perks that relate to each one. You can decide from there. You can also go to Patreon where you can support the show that way with a monthly donation or you can, and or I should say you can also support the Institute for Black Male Studies through Patreon as well. Um, so all you need to do uh, for that 
is go to patreon.com slash TH Johnson, and you can support either the Onyx Report or the Institute for Black Male Studies, right? Mr. Donnie Mack, what's going on? Good to see you. Um, right. See, we are getting it in. Folks are, are filtering in slowly but surely. And I know this one is... Appreciate that support, Sam. I am. I know this is this subject. Is, it doesn't seem to lend itself to what's going on in the public, but bear with me. Uh, it, there is a connection. You don't necessarily have to be in college or in Africana studies to appreciate what's going what's going on and what I'm about to say. Nevertheless, it is something that uh, I have to kind of put on the table, especially in light of some of the recent conversations I've had. All right. Um, that is not. We're not going to do the sacred today. I thought that was screened out, but we do have a couple of public service announcements that I thought would be uh, of interest, right? Um, okay, Lee says he didn't get a notification today for the first time. What's up, Damon? Yeah, I'm not sure what's going on. I think I've, you know, I've been shadow banned again as far as that. So, you know, that would explain quite a bit right now. Usually the numbers are a little higher, but I think, uh, YouTube has been a little unhappy with some of my subject matter. Nevertheless, uh, we're going to get to what we do and uh, people will come through as they come through. What's going on, Barry? Um, all right. So public service announcement number one. Yes. Just received a notification uh, today on okplayer.com. Uh, actually, it was dated two days ago. And it is entitled Atlanta's Freaknik announces a 2021 return and lineup, Adina Howard, Project Pat, Paul Wall, and more. Uh, This year's Freaknik will be hosted at Morris Brown College from October 8th through 10th. Um, It says uh, Freaknik is set to return this fall in Atlanta, and it'll be a three-day long celebration. Right. Uh, Years ago, it was wildly popular, unofficial Black Spring Break that was known for debauchery and chaos. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> That's to say the least. I mean, honestly speaking, it's, it's, it's probably if if I had had a chance to go in high school the way I wanted to, I probably wouldn't be here right now as your good professor. I uh, I wanted to go to Morehouse, but honestly, it wasn't for Morehouse. I wanted to go to Freaknik <laughs> and I couldn't afford to. So <laughs> uh, luckily I didn't because I don't think I would have graduated. Honestly, I really don't think I would have graduated. Nevertheless, uh, says originally launched in 1983, historically black college and university students traveled in large numbers to participate. Appreciate that, Xavier Brothers. Uh, thank you. Um, all right. Chief Rocker, thanks for coming through with the support. <laughs> uh, so it says university students traveled in large numbers to partake in Freaknik. At its peak, it's a, it attracted a quarter of a million attendees. Also, it wasn't abnormal to see vulgar acts (laughs) taking place in the streets of Atlanta in broad daylight in 99 due to violations and complaints. The last official Freaknik was held in Atlanta. Two years back, it returned as a family-friendly all-day festival and concert. (laughs) You have a family-friendly Freaknik, huh? Okay. Documentation of Freaknik is what uh, has kept the spirit of celebration alive. Oral stories and photos of its heyday are always floating around. You do a quick search on Tumblr, you'll find an assortment of videos and images that speak to the fashion and energy of Freaknik in the 90s. The 2021 version will be hosted at Morris Brown College. As I said, uh, it will feature um, uh, headliners, Adina Howard, Project Pack, Lil Scrappy, Ray J, 
Pastor Troy, JT Money, Paul Wall, 95 South, DJ Unk, Field Mob, and 8 Ball and MJG. So, <laughs> uh, <laughs> y'all can do what you will with it. Um, it is what it is. Um, let me see. I can, what's up, BGS in the house? I can't give him one right at the moment. I'll have to, I got to open that up because I don't have it open on YouTube. BGS, I haven't done that in a while, so you have to remind me how to do it. Anyway. Uh, so yeah, Freak Nick is back. <laughs> so y'all check it out at your whim. Um, before I go further, I do want to honor my supporters and subscribers. So let me go ahead and do that real quick. Shout out to them. Check this out. Appreciate all the supporters out there, subscribers. Please, please make sure you join. And I'm not sure if YouTube is bouncing people. I've been getting notifications that some, some people have been auto uh, unsubscribed automatically, you know. So, you know, if that's the case, uh, look out for your brother and, and join back in. What's up, Dr. Thunder? Good to see you. Um, I think Derek Holmes has a very important point. Uh, he says it would be, uh, he's talking about Freak Nick, it would be a Me Too honeypot these days. And you got a point. Uh, Freak Nick, um, I don't know. If it, it, if it can exist post me too, I think men have responded to me too with a, uh, with a, you know, a very serious and consistent stepping back in a, in a particular way, which on one level, you know, some people applaud on another level. Um, it's affecting mating, dating, and definitely marriage. So, uh, you have people all over the spectrum in terms of how they feel about that, but you know, so we'll see if freak Nick can really exist in the time period we live in at this moment. All right. Now, so yeah, so there we go. Back to that. Now, I also wanted to acknowledge that we have Father's Day coming up. And um, I basically wanted to start that with one of my favorite skits that I, I mainly make it a point to listen to every uh, year around Father's Day. And I think it's one that I hope you guys will enjoy as well. So uh, we will see if um, my system will comply with me here and play you a little piece of uh, brother Ali Sadiq. If you're not familiar with Ali Sadiq, uh, a comedian, I find him to be hilarious, but uh, he did an epic piece on Father's Day. So let's see if my system will comply and you guys can hear it. I've done the and I'll turn this up here. Let me say this. Let me say this. I've been thinking about this, too. Father's Day is the worst holiday in the world. I've done the research. I already know. Let me tell you something. Mother's Day is the second most celebrated holiday in the world. Christmas is first. So it's, that means it's Jesus, then your mama. <laughs> you know what Father's Day fall at? Number 20. 
I can't think of 18 other holidays. Let me know if you guys can hear that. Do you Put realize in the chat. Halloween is number six? Does that mean ghosts and goblins go before fathers? Arbor Day is number 13. I don't even know what that is. I just know it come before me. That's crazy. Columbus Day is number 16. Celebrating Columbus Day is like celebrating somebody finding money in your house. Where you get that $50 from? I discovered it in your kitchen. Ridiculous. Fathers and, I, and it's mother's fault. It's mother's fault. Because see, when Mother's Day come around, fathers go in their pocket deep. Go in their pocket deep. Hey, I want to give my mama something. You cash that money out. You know what mothers do? Hey, I want to give daddy something. Well, go in that car. It's some change in my little cup holder in there. <laughs> Don't nobody even have a sale for Father's Day. Who has a Father's Day sale? Mother's Day sale is like 30 of them. Everybody have Mother's Day sale. Don't nobody have no Father's Day sale. Who has Father's Day sale? The dollar store. That's how you get water holes and jumper cables for fathers. And the stores know this because now the store got a little trick for fathers. They make little packages with a little box. Give you suspenders, socks, and a shirt. One box. And you know what kids do? They give you that stuff throughout the year. They give you that shirt for Father's Day, them socks for your birthday, and then they just randomly give you something else as you know they think about it. It's crazy. Father's Day sucks. And I'm a father. I did all this work to be a father for it to suck. That's real talk. Well, that tends to be what Father's Day is for a lot of a lot of brothers. Um, I do hope you guys can have a better one than that um, for the most part. And that comes out of a culture of not really, not only appreciating, you know, not, not appreciating fathers, but not appreciating black men for the most part. I think we've developed a culture, particularly in the last 60 odd years, where the importance and value of black men is greatly diminished in the eyes of the family. So I think Father's Day is kind of a barometer for that in that respect. But there's something else in relation to Father's Day I wanted to kind of push forward as well. And that is that, you know, I did a show with um, Brother BGS and attorney Dennis Sperling. And at one point, um, actually, I think it was the one before that. It might have been with BGS and Gigi. But either way, it was a point where we started to talk about the absence of acknowledgement when it comes to fathers, grandfathers in particular, who sacrificed for decades to not even be remembered today to be the backdrop in the story of, say, Big Mama. You know what I mean? Um, And I had a lot of men come forward and tell me how many, you know, uh, how many of them didn't know their grandfather's names, didn't know anything about their grandfathers, how many of them had grandfathers who were alive, but, you know, stayed stayed out of the house, just working, you know, crazy hours, just... You know, because that was the only place uh, that they felt at home. You know what I mean? So I want to urge you this Father's Day to actually, if you're in a situation to obviously, you know, adopted, you're not able to. It is what it is. But I'm saying if you're in a position to actually find out more about your fathers, your grandfathers, your great grandfathers, your uncles, find out, make an effort this year to honor them by actually finding out more about them. Right. Most particularly. So when you have kids, if you don't already, you can actually pass down their memory as part of the family lineage as well. Do not contribute to the invisibility of the black men in your family line. 
right? And don't let the mistakes that they've made as human beings, let's not act like black men are the only ones that make mistakes, right? Let's not make, let, make the mistakes allow them to remain invisible or monsters in people's memory. Actually find the human being in your bloodline and speak to that. Remember that because in too many instances, instances, it seems that that's been forgotten. So that's one of the things. Research the men in your family who have gone invisible, who were little more than a paycheck or a story or two, or worse yet, a horrible memory as it's been told to you, especially, right? So keep that in mind. The other thing I wanted to urge people to do, you know, because my generation was really the generation that experienced single parenthood, you know, on a widespread basis first, the Gen X. And what I want to urge uh, people to do, particularly brothers, is to actually, if you don't, and if you haven't done this already, regardless of what your relationship is, at some point, make an effort to find out your father's side of the story. And of course, that's especially if you've never bothered to do it. If you've only found out about your father's history, if you wasn't raised with you in the home, hell, even if he was, sit down and talk to him about, you know, what what the story, the family story, especially your life, your birth. Find out what that story is from your father's perspective. It doesn't have to be um, you know, difficult it doesn't have to be oppositional and argument. It, it doesn't have to be intense. Just find out. Um, one of the things I find is the older I get, the more I talk to family members, the more the story changes. And I don't mean to suggest that people are being dishonest. You just find that people just drop different things that they haven't before. And I have been su surprised from time to time. And they'd be like, I, I'm like, how the hell have I never heard that? And they'd be like, oh, we didn't tell you that? Oh, my bad. Yo, sit down with your fathers. I don't care if you hate his guts, if you love him, just sit down and listen to the other side of the story. Find out about your own family origins in a manner that no one else can tell. And I'm not saying that makes, you know, men, black men perfect. It's not about that. It's just finding out your story, your family story from a different vantage point. And that's, of course, if you haven't already. But I will say, even if you have, sometimes, again, having these conversations, you get bits and pieces, you get nuggets that you didn't get before. Now, as it's been stated, right, history is always written by the winners. You know, when two cultures clash, the loser is obliterated and the winner writes the history books. Right. So uh, as Napoleon once says, what is history but a fable agreed upon? Well, what happens when the narrative of your life's history is only told by one parent? You get things from one perspective. So, you know, if you're able Check that out. See what else you might learn. Might be useful to you. Um, and if you can, even if it's only even for your own, you know, psychological well-being, you might be in a position, or you might be in a situation where you have to forgive and let let certain things go for your own well-being. Consider doing that. But take Father's Day this year and take it a bit further than the superficial kind of treatment it generally gets. Right. We don't usually get dinners and meals and, and extravagant gifts. I mean, you get a tie, some socks or something of that nature. It's usually very downplayed, which is why I play Sadiq because he's he's right. But I want black men in, in particular to take the extra step this Father's Day to uh, actually do something more than just superficially, you know, observe the holiday. Right. All right. Um, so that's reason. real quick. Now, I'm not going to do 
a full review. This is another public service announcement, right? This is, uh, I caught the, the last half hour of this uh, last night, and it, it prompted me to want to say something very briefly on something I witnessed in this. Now, for, for those of you who are not familiar, this is uh, Tyler Perry's The Family That Prays. Um, Perry is in this film as himself, not as, uh, well, you know, looking like himself, except for that jacked up Afro. Um, and he's not Medea in this particular one. But um, one of the things I found useful is, uh, or interesting, I should say, is watching the end of the film. So I caught it <laughs> just before uh, Sanaa Lathan was, was slapped over a counter, which is always an interesting experience. And it was interesting to watch it this time, you know, because I knew it was coming. And so when it happened, I saw the women all rush to uh, the brother you can see, you know, pictured on the uh, bottom right, right next to Alfre Woodard. So as he slaps his wife, uh, Alfre and, um, you know, uh, her sister in the film run over, you know, to grab him. Right. And even though they sat there and listened to this woman talk to him like a dog, their priority, of course, was still to prioritize her. And so it was interesting just to that moment. But that's not the point, the part, part I'm really emphasizing. One of the things I noticed at the end of this film was how you saw this coming together of women across race, across class, across, uh, you know, legacy that came together as women, successful women. Right. You got you got CEOs, you got COOs, you got, you know, uh, deep family money, you got racial tensions all put aside in the name of this kind of, you know, uh, transracial feminism, right? The women coming together and the men by and large, especially the black men, they only advance in any degree to any degree because the husband steals money from his wife, you know, and does so very passive aggressively. He doesn't even tell, you know, talk to her. He just does it behind her back, so to speak, which I found to be extremely weak. Now, obviously I'm not doing a deep dive in this film, but I am saying, I just observe observe this kind of, um, you know, feminist moment at the end of the film where women come together and triumph over the patriarchy, right? And it reminded me of a series that we went into last year, which was a little more blatant about the same point. In this instance, you saw black, white, Asian women all coming together and even a gay dude, you know, to represent the new, um, you know, era, right? The new era of who, uh, serves as the moral barometer of the world, who holds uh, justice, you know, in their very uh, DNA, and who should be spoken for, or who should be doing the speaking, I should say. So this is very interesting. It was the same kind of thing, but it's built on, you know, that kind of narrative that we see in Tyler Perry's film and takes it to a more extreme degree. Even if one of the black women in the film uh, actually becomes, or the series becomes a white woman at different points, all of those things aside, and of course, the zaddy worship, uh, none of that matters. I posted on uh, Facebook a little earlier yesterday um, about a show called In Treatment, where you got to see, you know, a black woman therapist, you know, engage in what we might call zaddy worship in that context. But it's interesting to see this kind of new um, transracial, right, transsexual um, feminism on display. And one of the hallmarks to this feminism is the elimination of black males, right? Malehood to some extent in general, but most particularly the invisibility of heterosexual black males and how that seems to be acceptable. Now, that's going to play a theme in tonight's discussion, or at least my talk, I should say, 
uh, because I'm seeing it kind of well-structured in the Academy. Very similar idea. So uh, if you haven't had a chance to check out uh, Tyler Perry's The Family That Prays or uh, Lovecraft Country, uh, do so at your, um, you know, at your leisure. You don't necessarily have to rush, but if you're interested in seeing how these ideas are being represented and especially how they're being, you know, you know, kind of given out to society and especially the next generation, it might be something you want to keep up with just to make sure you're not caught off guard by some of the things we hear. 141 people watching um, across uh, Facebook, uh, YouTube, and Twitch, and more on uh, innerlight.com. Please make sure you support the show. Again, um, like, share, subscribe, join, and donate. Make sure uh, you do that so we can continue to broadcast and give you what you need. Um, I might be doing another mobile uh, daily show tomorrow as... um, as my son and I head to uh, head out of town, I might give you guys another one of those. Hopefully uh, you guys will enjoy it uh, while we're getting on the road. All right. Okay. Let's see here. There we go. Uh, remember, before we jump in uh, to support the Institute for Black Male Studies, you can go to instituteforblackmalestudies.com. You can do everything from take courses to taking workshops to also watching a series of free interviews with high-profile black males, uh, so you can enjoy that. Uh, you can also purchase merchandise if you click on the merchandise link in the menu, and you'll see everything there um, and more uh, than you expect. Scroll down to the very bottom of the page and wait for it to load, and you can click next page, and there are several, I think it's like six or seven pages of merchandise, so please make sure you check that out um, and support the show. Uh, appreciate the Cash App expansion wiring. Thank you very much. Okay. All right. Let's get into it. Africana studies. All roads lead to the black gynocracy. What the hell am I talking about? Okay. I had a chance to have a conversation the other night with a colleague of mine. And we were talking about, you know, our experiences in the field. Now, just so I can put some context to this. Um... So I've been teaching now for about 23 years in Africana studies. I have three degrees in my field, one at the undergraduate level, one at the master's level, and um, uh, a doctorate in cultural studies with a certificate in Africana. Um, So you're talking about 1992 to 2008 uh, was my training era. And so that being said, I came into Africana studies um, under the tutelage and direction of the late Dr. William Little. Um, shout out to him. Peace be upon him. I hope he's, his family is doing well. Uh, he was a hell of a mentor. He was also a past president of the National Council for Black Studies. Um, so um, his, his presence meant a lot to me. He was the first teacher I ever had that actually saw my potential. You know, even though I got A's and B's since... Um, kindergarten, really. I never actually had a teacher give a damn. And he was actually the first black male teacher I'd ever had. And this was my junior year of undergrad. So he kind of, you know, saw me and and saw the work I was doing on campus. I had founded the Pan-African Union on the campus and whatnot. He kind of pulled me aside. And next thing I knew, you know, he was really, you know, pushing for me. So uh, I will, you know, always honor him for doing that. I didn't know I had potential to do anything. And it was it was actually him having faith in me that had a lot to do with where I got to, you know, especially in terms of graduate school. 
So shout out to him. But if you're not familiar, Africana Studies evolved out of Black Studies. Uh, the first formal department was at San Francisco State, 1968, under Dr. Nathan Hare, who is still alive and is on Facebook, as a matter of fact. Uh, so you can shout him out and uh, whatnot if you've never met him or never heard anything about him. His work with he, you know, he and his wife have done, Nathan and Julia Hare, is, is phenomenal. So you can check that out. But anyway, um, Africana Studies evolves out of Black Studies. And from Black Studies, you have a variety of different fields, African-American Studies, um, Pan-African studies, you know, there's all kinds of different variations of the field. Man, matter of fact, when I got to Fresno State, it was Africana and American Indian studies. Go get that. You know, there's all kinds of variations that come out of that. Some more political, some less political than others. Right. Pan-African studies was very much in your face, very much uh, a political endeavor, whereas Africana was a lot more subdued in a particular way, but sought to kind of focus on uh, an attempt to bring together um, the diaspora and uh, continental African cultures and have some analyses under that rubric, right? So that was kind of the framework for Africana studies. Can you, can we actually, you know, perform research that connected the African world, right? The diaspora and the continent uh, and really pull those, you know, kind of lines together, you know? And I, I came through that at uh, Cal State Dominguez Hills under Dr. Little as far as that. And then I went to Temple University and did my master's in African-American studies uh, where I was more formally introduced to the African-centered theory uh, that under um, a number of different scholars there, but Olafia um, Asante primarily. And, you know, there you kind of had this, you know, introduction to the one world African culture, you know, African culture as a superstructure that connected all black African people around the world, this kind of idea. And of course, Afrocentricity. Right, seeing the world from uh, an, an African standpoint, and you have this kind of care, you know, this kind of uh, viewpoint um, of the world through an African lens, which was the central idea. Now, at that time, this was about ninety, I think ninety six to ninety seven. Uh, I was at Temple, and then you saw this early shift to gender, um, or at least that was my first. Like, nah, that was my formal introduction to it. I didn't realize I'd been introduced to it a little earlier, even in undergrad. I mean, at that point, you could take a course about, you know, literature, about whatever, and English, and, you know, and then it would be kind of converted in a way to a black feminist course. I didn't really know that at the time. I just thought that's what it was. But um, yeah, that was my first strike, really introduction, real introduction to it. By the time I got to Temple, um, people were taking courses in the women's studies department, like Sonia Sanchez. I would be teaching in women's studies and you came into Africana studies. And if you were interested in gender, you would go to women's studies and take a course. As with many other places, gender, gender studies was synonymous with women's studies. Um, I mean, I would even go so far as to say that there wasn't even as strong of a queer studies, you know, approach to things as there would be later. Um, but one of the things I did notice is that heterosexual men didn't have a gender to speak of. One of the arguments being used was that because black studies was so sexist that, um, you know, you needed women and gender studies to focus on women and girls because they had been ignored. Right? I wouldn't say that there was a serious investment in black males as a gender, but that was, you know, that was kind of the argument being made. So, you know, here I started to see the split happening uh, doing my master's degree at Temple. 
And, you know, it was what it was. And at that time, if you took a gender studies class as a man, um, you know, you could pretty much expect to, you know, it, it, it was almost like being treated like a white dude coming in African studies. I mean, it was there, there was an intense kind of split, and, you know, that kind of thing. And, you you know, a lot of guys would do it to try and demonstrate how progressive they were, you know, and sometimes discussions behind the, the or under the table, you know, some of it had to really do with trying to get women, whatever. I'm not going to say that was the case for all men. Uh, I saw both. I saw men who were just curious about the subject matter, and I saw men who were explicitly there trying to get numbers. It is what it is. But um, that's when I began to see the split. And by the time I got to Claremont Graduate University in 2000 to do my doctorate, I saw it uh, on a whole nother level, right? Where in that regard, um, feminism, really black feminism in particular, took a whole new turn at least as far as my experience was concerned. And and I start, started to see what I began to see much later in a lot of different areas, whether you're talking about religion. I've talked about this before in regard to Christianity or Ifa. Uh, I've talked about this uh, in regard to education, even K through 12, this hyper emphasis on girls. So in terms of in terms of, you know, Christianity, we're talking about really the linkage between prosperity gospel and feminism. And the ways in which that changed the narrative of how the church even presented what Christianity was. And this in many ways led to uh, many men, black men leaving the church. In terms of E5, I talk about this in regard to um, these kinds of, as one brother put it, these kind of Wiccan sects that have popped up. And they emphasize the Orishas, but only the female ones, right? And you're seeing this in media as well. I talked about this in terms of the show American Gods. You're starting to see this culture of you know just this hyper priority on women and girls and the the invisibility of even the masculine principle not just boys and men right in education we can talk about this in terms of the hyper focus on girls uh especially k through 12 right where we see uh one of my daily shows i showed that even though black males are getting geds in pretty strong numbers they're not necessarily graduating high school uh, especially in a, in a way that, you know, propels them into college. That's still the purview of black women as it pertains to the black community. Um, and you have uh, an overwhelming number of female teachers and the emphasis the, or the impact of that, I should say, on female students is something that is under uh, uh, emphasized on. People don't talk about it enough, but I think it has a profound impact on student confidence, grade performance and graduation. Nevertheless, this is the purview of girls and boys become hyper invisible, black boys in particular, especially when you talk about those who are sent to special ed, right? Those who are expelled more often, suspended more often than anybody, almost double the numbers of black girls, right? Um, and it's absolutely ridiculous and it's somehow acceptable, right? Uh, you got boys who by the eighth grade, you know, are only 10% of which who are, you know, able to read at grade level, um, science and math, you know, is about 12%. So the numbers are extremely low and we tolerate it. So there's a hyper emphasis on girls and a complete, you know, obliviousness about boys in the K through 12 level. Um, and that of course has a direct impact on college, undergrad and graduate. Uh, so we see an absence there. If we're going to talk about private or appreciate that support D remedy. We're going to talk about private or corporate investment. We've seen this in the last year, especially whether you're talking about Goldman Sachs, Visa, Google, MasterCard, a deep investment in improving uh, the state of black women. 
no to, no discussion whatsoever in regard to the state of black men um, or boys for that matter, not in any significant way. Um, I don't have, I need to, if anybody has any, any data on a nonprofit, um, you know, those running nonprofits uh, disaggregated by race and gender, please let me know. My suspicion is that you'll find as far as black folk are concerned, uh, that black women tend to lead that industry more so than black men. Uh, activism, you know, we've seen, especially post 2015, um, a real narrative to eliminate black males except as victims, but not in terms of the focus of policy, not in terms of the focus of leadership, and definitely not in terms of the focus of resources that are um, extended on the base basis of that tragedy. Uh, those resources that you know people send in in hopes to you know, kind of um, down to eliminate the arbitrary killing of, of black men, things of that nature, despite the donations that come in sometimes in the billions, none of that goes to actually changing the lives of black males, particularly heterosexual black males who are the ones dying to the greatest degree. So in terms of activism, there's been a kind of usurping of it, uh, as with the other areas I've mentioned, uh, and it works primarily uh, in the interest of women and girls in the community. Uh, the black family itself as an institution we've known for decades now is primarily run by black women. Right? Families are, our children are born nearly uh, at 80% uh, to uh, black female headed households. So the family is not run uh, by black men. Uh, if we were to talk about entrepreneurship, you know, um, the emphasis on identifying and helping entrepreneurs or celebrating uh, black entrepreneurship is overwhelmingly targeted at women, even though black men, uh, which we recently found out about a month ago, that black men actually did have more entrepreneurial businesses. You wouldn't know it uh, because nobody discusses it. Right? Nobody celebrates it. It is primarily focused on black female entrepreneurs. And last year during the especially during the first you know eight, nine months of the pandemic, but even to now. Any emphasis on small businesses and entrepreneurship in the black community in terms of material assistance was earmarked either for race. Uh, so so it would be earmarked for black people or for women in general or for black women, but nothing for black male entrepreneurs. So yet another area where we see uh, black males invisible. You're going to talk about state assistance, whether you're talking about TANF or WIC or AF, you know SNAP, any of these programs, hyperemphasis on women. There was a long-standing practice where men couldn't get it, the man in the house rule. And even when that practice was formally done away with, the rates didn't change. Men, by and large, don't necessarily uh, benefit from state assistance uh, in the ways that women do. Uh, and even heading into the pandemic, where we started to see black male homelessness, especially for those coming out of prison, uh, reaching incredible numbers, up to 80, 90 percent in some major urban cities, there's been very little emphasis on that. Even when we were talking about homelessness last year and we found that black America constituted half of the country's homeless, there was no emphasis on black males who the overwhelming majority of the black homeless were. You know, again, a lot of this being precipitated by incarceration, but yet and still no emphasis. And again, and you guys have heard me say this quite a bit, even when black men have housing vouchers upon getting out of prison, they're often not able to get it, which just, you know, formerly for, more so leads them into homelessness. And as we discuss this month, uh, the, the, you know, the end of uh, the rent moratorium, you know, again, black men fall in, into this invisible realm. 
you know, I hear the, the emphasis being placed on women and children, and I hear the emphasis in the black community being placed on women. Nobody wants to talk about the fact that the men have been in the streets for years, especially in the last year. Very few reports or discussions about where black men actually are. And so when you hear these reports about how we need to focus on black girls and black women and, and homelessness and the rent moratorium, just remember that the degree to which black men are not mentioned, even though it gives the suggestion that black males are doing well and everybody else is struggling, keep it in mind, play it in your own head. It's actually that they were already in the street. So even though by the end of June, I think it's June 30th, we're, we're waiting to see if Biden is going to do something to stem the, you know, the rent moratorium. Black male homelessness has already long since occurred. Pre-pandemic. And in the pandemic, more than likely gotten worse, but we've gotten very little data about it. Right? Um, you know, and even if you talk about Medicaid, things of that nature. Not as strong an emphasis on black males. Hell, it's a question of whether or not black males live long enough to benefit from it. So I mention all those different areas, religion, education, uh, the private industry, nonprofit, activism, the black family itself, entrepreneurship, state assistance, Medicaid. I talk about those things and I bring them up to talk about the overwhelming shift of focus on women and girls. So it's not just in the academy. It's happening in society. And I wanted to provide that backdrop because by the time you start to talk about this, the academy and in particular uh, black folk in the academy and, and especially in regard to Africana studies, I wanted to give you a framework for what's happening in the larger society as a whole. Right. Black men are finding themselves, um, you know, absent now. So, again, based on the graduation rates, based on, you know, those going to college, the numbers for black males tend to be low, even at Fresno State. Um, we literally have, last I checked, you know, if I'm able to get the data, which is not every year, it's less than 400, I think, at this point, black males. And they don't disaggregate the data in terms of, um, you know, Africans and African-Americans, so it might be lower than that. Um, but when I got there in 2008, 9, 2009, it was uh, probably three times that number. And I have a program uh, that we are still running to support black male students, uh, the Onyx, the, you know, the Onyx Black Male Collective. But, you know, when we tried to bring in, we tried to support the students, they weren't there. We, we pressured the university to help us get more students, more black male students at that. We did, but it was we it was difficult to get them to disaggregate again the data. So. How many of them were actually African-Americans? Very difficult to tell. But you see the point that I'm getting at. See the point. So as we talk about black studies and its evolution from black studies to African-American studies to Africana studies, um, you know, the emphasis on black males has dramatically shifted in focus, right? To the degree where black males themselves are finding themselves almost under assault. You know what? It's almost like a, it's, I wouldn't even call it a cold war. It's almost like a silent war. Shots are being fired, kind of have a sense of where they're coming from, but you dare not say it. I was talking to a brother who's in the field, uh, very, very well positioned in terms of the amount of work he's put in to get where he is. And we, and I, we were having a conversation the other night. And he said something to me I found interesting. He said one of the things he's noticed uh, a lot amongst the students was that there's been a new mantra, if you will, 
Now, I've seen this mantra in action, but I hadn't actually heard people say it. And I'm, I'm going to paraphrase it. But the mantra basically says that I am for the upliftment of black folk, but black females first. I guess, if you will, we can call it BF1. And there's a strong collective of women who have been trained and indoctrinated into a BF1 structure, formally in the academy. But you can also get this in popular media. You know, again, Oprah opened the door for that, right? She really kind of, you know, brought in a certain type of feminism and brought and broadcast it to mainstream culture in a way where you had generations of black women who wouldn't call themselves feminists who were using black feminist talking points and rhetoric because they were getting it through popular culture, even though they had never actually read Patricia Hill Collins. They never actually read Bell Hooks. They were still getting the popular narratives of it coming through popular media. So that being said, we now have BF1. BLM, for example, is a BF1 organization, Black Females First. But what we're finding more and more, and this has been going on for a while. I mean, in the 80s, if you went to school and you took gender studies, you more than likely were introduced to, you know, feminist theory was what it was. Right? That's still the case, but it's gotten, a, it's gotten more forthright, more aggressive. At this point, to be... Um, to speak to black upliftment is synonymous with prioritizing black women and girls, often at the expense of black boys and men. That's where we've gotten. That's the era we're in at this point. And much of that has influenced the field of Africana studies. It is a field that has shifted uh, in relation to the gender wars, in relation to the representation wars, These, you know, particularly in the 80s and 90s. There was a huge emphasis on media representation and there were all kinds of arguments back and forth about the validity of it, the relevance of it. And really, uh, when you add in intersectionality in 1989, Kimberly Crenshaw, what you end up with in this stew of ideas as it pertains to Africana studies, as it pertains to black folk in the academy and black folk at large, a hyper, hyper emphasis on black women and girls and LGBT on the basis of the idea that if black women, girls, and LGBT are um, placed on a platform and elevated, everybody else will be elevated as well. We go back to, you know, a rising tide lifts all boats. None of this has actually had any serious or material impact on the group that has suffered the most. Whether you like it or not, whether you want to talk about the victimization of black men or not, it is what it is. Black men find themselves on the bottom of everything. From life expectancy to employment. It is what it is. You can sidestep it. You can ignore it. That's what the fuck it is. So in the field itself, we've learned to not talk about black males at all. To do so is in and of itself synonymous with um, misogyny, sexism. So the emphasis is on women and girls. How do I know that? Well, I'll give you some examples on a couple of different areas where we can see how this kind of plays out, right? All right, so I'm talking about black studies and the usurping of the field by black feminism, black queer studies. All right, so this is a quote, and this comes from my good brother, Tommy Curry, and, uh, and, and he wrote a piece several years ago um, uh, that you can, I think you'll be able to find if you go to academia.com. This is a piece entitled Black Studies, Not Morality, 
anti-black racism, neoliberal co-optation, and the challenges to black studies under intersectional axioms. Um, See if I can enlarge it. And I'm only enlarging it so that you can screenshot it. It might be something you want to look to or look at later uh, at your discretion. Um, It is, you know, written for an academic audience. So uh, I will kind of break down the highlights of it uh, at the end. Uh, So bear with me for a moment. Uh, But he wrote this piece as an analysis of the state of black studies. And in the conclusion on page 20, he states, there are no liberation strategies against anti-blackness that can occur within discourses or debates, presuming the liberatory processes of dialectic and dialogic remedy. If the categories black people are confined to remain enclosed within the assumptions and predilections of, of European man, the oppositional logic ignited by the deployment of gender constructions on black bodies, making the black hetero male the mimetic equivalent of white patriarchy, as well as the assumptions of enlightenment liberalism codified as recognition of the plight slash invisibility of the racial gendered marginalized other, concretizes rather than dispels the mythology of black pathology. To suggest that within blackness, the zones of non-being that precede the genocidal rage of white negrophobia, black inhumanity is imitative, not only desiring, but confining itself to the existing oppressive relations of white people to the world. It's to hold that within black people unable to live out their existentially known humanity under white supremacy, there actually resides multiple axes of self-actualization and the hierarchalized power over other non-beings that remain structured, existing, and a mirroring of white actualized being. This thesis, which selectively assigns moral revelation and escapism to intersectional subjects, ultimately suggests that Black life, Black existence, has no content and substance of its own. It is theorized, uh, it is to theorize Blackness as completely mimetic and impotent to create fundamentally different relations to the world and others outside of the colonial meanings and oppositions taken to be essential to race, class, and gender. That is definitely a mouthful and there is quite a bit there and I am not going to pretend to go through all of that because, you know, that it was a 25 page paper that he sent to me, um, single, <laughs> single line, I believe. So it, it's an extensive piece and there's a lot being argued there. So I am I, I cannot do it justice in this discussion in its entirety, but I will take out elements of it that speak to what I'm talking about. One of the things he dealt with in that piece is the perception of hetero black males, right? And he says, one of the things that became very popular in the field itself was the idea that black males were mimetic. Black males were to be seen and treated because the idea was that they themselves argue for an attempt to be white men. And it is not the case. And if you've read The Man Not, he goes into greater detail about how that is not the case. Nevertheless, this became in many ways, as far as gender is concerned, black gender, the prevailing idea about how to perceive black men. So in the academy, what we're looking at within black studies, now, mind you, women's studies, Asian studies, Chicano Latino studies, all these different fields of study came after Africa, uh, black studies. Black studies kicked open the door as far as that. Right. But at a particular point, just as the activist movement, uh, the civil rights movement um, ended up giving way to the women's movement, much happened in the same way with black studies. The emphasis on race, 
gave way to the emphasis on gender. And in that switching over, and I am simplifying, maybe even oversimplifying some things that require a lot of nuance we just don't have time for. One of the things we noticed was a dramatic shift to villainizing black men, making them mimetically similar, if not identical to white men, and thus justifying the elimination, right? And the obliviousness that is well-practiced now as it relates to black men. So that's one of the things we kind of noticed. If we're going to talk about the actual theoretical structure of the field and how uh, how gender has, you know, gender and sexuality have played a a serious role in reimagining how Africana studies identifies itself. One of the main themes that we have to get to is the villainization of black men from within Africana studies. So the field that I've given myself to since what, 94, we figure... 27 years, there was a dramatic shift in how black men were seen. And here's the thing, black men were not prepared for this. The, those who went into black studies to become professors, especially most of the, most, much of the time they were nationalists. You know, these were brothers who were looking to uplift the community, you know, whatnot. We were not prepared to have gender weaponized against black men or manhood or maleness at that, because it also meant the obliviousness toward boys. We weren't prepared for any of that. And many of us didn't know how to necessarily deal with it either. It became one of those things that had a serious impact on even how we began to theorize, even about non-gendered studies or or non-gendered issues. But you couldn't get away from gender if you were considered a serious scholar. And in order to deal with gender, you had to defer to feminism. You couldn't be critical of it, not if you wanted to get anything published. And there are other reasons for that because it's not just limited to the theories, right? It's not just limited to the theories that you're allowed to discuss. It also had to do with who was present. And what do I mean by that? Well, uh, if you talk about, and, I, and I've said this several years in a row, but I'm just going to focus on one year. Uh, the organiz- there, Now, there are a couple of organizations that are central to the field, but the one I always attended, the conferences I attended were the National Council for Black Studies. And let me see here. One of the things I found when I attended a conference in New Orleans 2019, a couple years ago, um, I got into the habit of counting the number of presentations at the annual conferences that were presented on the subject of black men and boys. Now that meant anybody could be presenting on them. They weren't necessarily just presented by black men. And one of the things I found just at that conference, and I'd been seeing this the years leading up to this, but it, the numbers had only gotten worse, right? So I wrote a message and I posted it on Facebook at one point. I said, a taste of the field of Africana studies. As I am attending the National Council for Black Studies conference in New Orleans, I've accounted nine sessions and panels on black males and 23 on black women, nearly three times as many. There are more than seven times as many papers studying black women and girls than men and boys in the field and in the only field unapologetically focuses on black people. So. The only field that unapologetically focuses on black people, you have an, an eliminating of a focus on black males. Matter of fact, hold on. I don't think I put these or back to some of these in a moment. This was a picture of one of the panels I attended. So even though you had a panel discussion on Africa in Africana studies on black males, only one panel person came 
And this was pretty consistent across the panels that I found. And of those who patronized the panel, you're seeing the room. About four people counting myself. The opposite was the case as it pertained to black women and girls. And this also had to do with the membership of those who were there in attendance. It was, and, and I don't have exact numbers. I, you know, I'm just counting. I'm just looking. It was probably an eight to two ratio of black women to black males. Right. One of the flagship organizations in the field, every field has a flag, flagship organization or two. And it's, it's, it's um, customary. You know, uh, it also has to do with job advancement, sometimes even job interviews where you participate in the annual conference of your field. Right. Each field has it. That's where you, you, you get the cutting edge work in your field. That's where you meet the scholars. That's where you present work so people know where you're at. And that may even be where you, you know, engage in interviews if you're if you're trying to get a job in another university or whatever. So so the conferences are a big deal in the flagship organizations for your field. And sometimes there are more than one, you know. Um, but this is the one I had always attended, mainly because my mentor was a president, a past president. And he began to bring us as early as 1994, 95, I believe it was, was the first ones I started to attend. And I, and I used to see fairly significant numbers of men. Yes, Donnie, like NSBE, I believe. Yeah. Each field, I don't care if you're in engineering, sociology, history, every field has its flagship organizations. You need to participate in them. Um, you know, to function in your field. You know, this is how you keep up with the, the advancements. This is what goes on. So you can see what I'm talking about right here, right? I didn't take a picture of the panels I went to for women and girls, but packed capacity, right? Packed capacity. Boys were, and men as subject matters were virtually ignored. And the numbers every year dwindled as far as the male presence. Altogether, at some point, I, I predict one, if not both of the primary organizations in the field will begin to change its name to focus on women and girls in some way, shape or form. We'll see. But that's my suspicion, because by and large, they're the only ones there, which also has to do right with those who are graduating, those who are even able to make it into um college, let alone who are able to stay for graduate school and, you know, participate in the field. But this is what we're looking at, how much emphasis there is in remedying this and outwardly challenging the absence of males, very little. But why would there be if the perception of black males, the dominant perception is that we are attempting to be mimetic copies of white men and therefore we should be treated as such? Why would there be a call to eliminate the exclusion of black men and boys from higher education? let alone from being received as human beings in their, in a field of study that prioritizes black folk. Right? So that's the first thing. But let's talk about faculty. The numbers of faculty, again, this is important because it has to do with the, the very people that are involved, the very people who are even present to espouse ideas in the classroom. That will have an impact on which ideas get spread, which ideas are considered central, which ideas are considered important. That has to do with who's actually in the classroom teaching. I'm gonna pull yet again from my brother, Tommy Curry, but this is from a paper he and his wife, Gwinnetta Curry wrote together. And the paper is entitled, On the Perils of Race, Neutrality and Anti-Blackness. Let me see something. Uh, I don't remember if I made, yeah, I did. I made a slide so you guys can see this one. Okay. On the perils of race neutrality and anti-blackness, 
uh, Drs. Tommy and Gwinnett Curry, uh, note in their epic co-authored piece that there are roughly 117,000 Black professors, 70,737 Black women, 46,651 Black males in the academy altogether against about 1.27 million whites, roughly 664,000 white men, 616,000 white women. Although there are slightly more white male academics than female, that dynamic is reversed for Black professors. Approximately 23,000 more Black women than men in 2011 See the American Association of University Professors April 2014 report. According to the National Center for Education Statistics, there are more Black women faculty at the lecturer, instructor, and assistant professor levels than Black men, but are at roughly even rates at the associate and full professor ranks. Now, why is that important? It speaks to who is actually espousing what ideas and where, as it pertains to the classroom, as it pertains to the conferences, and even though not noted here, as it pertains to who's publishing in the field. In other words, black men are not considered a priority and thus are not present. How much of a push there is to remedy that? Nil. Right? So the point I'm getting at in regard to that is when you talk about the people in the actual room, they don't include black men. Thus, the ideas that are exalted in the field are nil. Now, this is, a, this is another piece I'm not going to um, spend a lot of time on, but uh, yeah, I might have to enlarge this too. Here you go. So this here, just real quick, this is based off of a survey conducted in 2013 uh, of who chairs Black Studies departments. This is a survey of about 1,777 colleges and universities. Um, and basically what you saw was slightly more uh, Black male department program heads uh, than females. But statistically, they're near parity. And again, this is eight years ago, and I would argue this has probably radically changed. But still, Africana studies in and of itself is probably the most um, progressive field in terms of leadership. You know, leadership programs in terms of, I mean, chairing departments, so on and so forth. This is eight years ago. Right? But what I'm saying to you is, for the most part, it is a fairly progressive field. And even though you probably have more gender parity in regard to field leadership, um, or at least you did, there's still a severe absence when it comes to the theorization around black males. You know, around and not only the theorization, but who actually graduates from the field, who actually becomes faculty. There's a severe obliviousness about black boys. Now, where does this all take us? Well, if you look at the outcomes of this absence of black males, there are a couple of things that come about from this. Um, first of which are, uh, and this, this has to do with the conversations I've been having with black men who've reached out to me. Now they've asked that I keep their identities private. It is what it is. You got people who are afraid, uh, of losing their positions. And I don't mean afraid. I'm not suggesting that they're cowards, anything along those lines. They, you know, these are people that have kids to feed. It is what it is. But because of the absence of black males in many different universities, uh, even at the faculty and administrative levels, what you find is a severe vulnerability to speaking one's mind. So you have a lot of black males that stay quiet for the sake of maintaining their positions. And they have to. Right. So one of the brothers I talked to, and I've spoken to a few in the last week, um, and this tends to happen to me regularly. I get brothers that reach out to me uh, to share their experiences you know, because they can't share them anywhere else, right? So they share them with me. 
One of the things we can talk about is bullying techniques such as reputation malignment. And what does that mean? That means that in the last five years alone, there's been an uptick, right? in the number of men who've been arbitrarily accused uh, of uh, everything from harassment to sexual assault. Now, here's the thing. On university campuses, how much of that requires evidence? Very little. So what tends to happen? There are men who are likely doing this, not denying that in the slightest. Not. Although we're going to ignore women that do it, and, let's, and we're going to act like that doesn't even happen, right? We're going to treat it like a statistical anomaly, even though even I can tell you stories about sexual harassment at work and on the, in the academy, even going back to being a student. I remember fe black female professors who required sex for grade, but there was no conversation about it. I had employers that required sex for me to keep my job and other black men, of course, no discussion about it. Matter of fact, certain time periods, you, if you tried to go in and report it, you'd be laughed out of the offices. Wouldn't be taken seriously. And I've still gotten reports from black men today, even in university settings, that when they have tried to report their own sexual harassment, that there's been nothing done about it. But one of the things we're also starting to see, and this is not only limited to, to faculty, it's also being extended to students at different universities, is how exactly to accuse men of crimes in regard to um, the crimes of a sexual nature, again, with no evidence, and malign his reputation, or to go one step further, threaten to do so. There are black men that have reached out to me to tell me stories about how their entire professional reputations have been maligned. It's arbitrarily at that. It has stemmed their career advancement, even though they themselves insist they didn't do anything and there was no evidence required for these accusations to have impact on their careers. Where is the discussion for them? There isn't one because to entertain a discussion for them is tantamount to supporting rape as far as people imagine it. And where that leaves innocent men? Nowhere. So these brothers have reached out to me in a variety of ways, and this happens at least a couple times a month. reach out and tell me the most horrendous stories and the things that they've had to do to try and keep food on the table, despite that their reputations were torn apart and nobody cared, right? So the extent to which everything from false claims to threats uh, and bullying has played a role, right? That's one aspect. We can also talk about publications. It's a requirement to publish if you want to advance as a scholar in your field. But ideologically speaking, if you try to publish especially against the tide of the trend, right? You'd be hard pressed to find a way to do so. This has a direct impact on one's ability to advance their career. So what did Kwame Brown call it? The go along to get along game? It applies to the university as well. One has to go along to get along, especially in regard to gender analyses, right? Because there's only one acceptable gender framework in the academy as it pertains to black folk. And that's primarily black feminism and black queer studies or, you know, it, it, that's it. That's why I propose black masculinism to provide an ideological umbrella for those who would like to actually study and articulate what goes on with black men beyond stereotypical tropes of black toxic masculinity. But that's limited in terms of scope. And when it comes to trying to publish, be it in a journal or at a press, you will find yourself pushed out.
which as, as I said, again, has a direct impact on your ability to publish and participate in your field. Another area is job hire slash promotion disruption. Black men who openly advocate for black males, especially hetero males in their work, will find themselves maligned in terms of being able to secure jobs elsewhere, especially if the majority on the job hire committee or in the, the department itself or the program itself happen to be black feminists, male or female, even though there's usually a, a larger number of females. Many of those men will find themselves unable to secure new employment elsewhere. Because basically what we're talking about is not a field of study or a series of ideological standpoints where even if you're, if you're going to talk about um, identity calculus, you know, calculus or, you know, this identity framework that we get out of intersectionality that, you know, tells us with an almost mathematical equation, who is the most pressed, even if that's the framework you're going to come to, you're going to use. Black males don't find themselves in a position to be able to speak with authority regardless of the evidence. So when it comes to being able to secure jobs elsewhere or be promoted within your own university, if you advocate for black males openly in your research, you may find it extremely difficult. You may be leveled with accusations of sexism or misogyny, not in because of what you've said about women, but, but because of what you haven't. In other words, you focused on black males. That is enough. So you'll find black males kind of pushed out in regard to that job hires and promotion. Ideological anti-black misandry. This is what I spoke to when I read the first piece by Tommy Curry, where he talks about the perception of black men in the field. In other words, in order for you to progress and be considered an acceptable scholar, you have to defer to black feminism. And you have to do so by um, demonstrating a willingness to entertain a certain degree of ideological anti-black misandry in your work. You have to espouse it and you have to support it. Here's my warning, by the way. So small aside, here's my warning to those who do this. They eat their mascots too. Just so you know. You can kiss ass as long as you want, but at some point, they eat their mascots. So anyway, the last area I'll bring up out of the five, right? So there's bullying techniques as uh, reputation malignment. There's, uh, you know, being expunged from publishing. There's job hire and promotion disruption. There's ideological anti-black misandry. That is the, the, the subject matter of your research. And then lastly, there's organizational and resource alienation and hoarding. Now, what do I mean by that? What do I mean by that? When I talk about organizational alienation, WG, appreciate that. Um, organizational and resource alienation and hoarding. What I'm saying to you is that as I showed with NCBS, there's no push to identify black males who've been alienated in the field. Matter of fact, one of the going things you'll find at most academic conferences in regard to gender presentations, right, panels, the argument is that if you have a panel, especially one on men and boys, there needs to be quote unquote diversity. You gotta have women got to have LGBT present or it's, you know, received as misogynist panel in and of itself. Now, when you go to panels that are primarily filled with women presenting, particularly on black feminist issues, there's no such requirement for diversity. 
especially as it pertains to hetero men or hetero men subject matter, subject matter regarding hetero men, unless it's punitive, unless it's um, some type of withering critique. That's acceptable. But one that actually promotes hetero black male humanity as human rather than, you know, some type of boogeyman, not necessarily. Right? That's kind of how that goes. So that being said, that's one example. When, you, when I talk about organizational, I'm talking about the actual uh, downplaying and elimination of males from organizations, whether we're talking about academic organizations or we can go to, you know, groups like BLM. This is one of the things I've been talking about. Except BLM was far more explicit in stating that black men will, hetero men will not hold any positions of leadership. I remember that being stated very early on. And even when they stopped saying it publicly, you saw it and who led what and what organizations. And the organizations that were regional and local that were led by heterosexual black men were downplayed. And I almost guarantee you received very little to no funding when Patrice Culler started to disseminate some of the resources that BLM had, had obtained. This is what I mean by the organizational downplaying of black men. Right? But resource alienation has to do with just that. So, again, earlier I talked about Goldman Sachs, Visa, MasterCard, you know, so on and so forth, private corporations. And you can even apply this to some degree uh, to the nonprofit, uh, you know, arm as well. They overwhelmingly target black women and girls. And how many of these black women and girls reflect any of this funding on their boys, their sons? We're not even talking about giving men jobs per se or emphasizing men and boys. How many of them actually use this in some way to upload, uplift the whole community? There's no data to say specifically. I don't I haven't seen any charts or reports, but one of the things I can say just from being in these various fields and having conversations, I've not heard of it. The hyper focus tends to be primarily on black women and girls by black women at the expense of, if no one else, their metaphorical sons, their metaphorical husbands, their more metaphorical partners. In other words, black men are not able to benefit from any of these resources that consider them invisible. What effect does that have over the next 20 to 30 years in the black community? I'm curious. You tell me. This is what I meant when I talked about uh, the kind of uh, social gentrification of the community. When you invest in one demographic on gender grounds and push for their advancement, whether it's in education, whether it's in administration, whether it's in the nonprofit realm or private uh, philanthropy, and you completely ignore the other, especially if that other is at the bottom of every freaking metric you can find. What does that do? And to what extent... Appreciate that, uh, WG. To what extent does that impact the future of the family, let alone the community? And when you look at these attacks, like on Black Twitter, of songs like Catering to You, you see this misandry is deep-seated at this point. How many people care? I can't say because the women that care and the men that care are fairly silent too often. Too often because they're afraid of being attacked. So what I've been pushing for in many ways has been to include black males. I am, if you will, BM1. Because I can't conceptualize a community that is supposed to exist off the labor and the, and the sacrifice of black men and then turn around and have them be completely oblivious. Whether it's the grandfathers who put families in homes, 
whether it's the brothers who work and bring home money to families, whether it's those who are in the academy doing research, whether it, it doesn't matter, whether it's the activists on the street, if you're going to eliminate black males from every possible facet of black life and tell them they aren't shit and you do so verbally, but as well, as well as administratively as well, you know, in terms of who actually gets in, graduates, so on and so forth. If that level of misandry is going to be acceptable in every context we can think of that pertains to blackness, there is nowhere else that can go. And so I push for black males to really begin to advocate for themselves. Now, I'm going to bring on my good brother because I think he can help me break into this with a little more depth. And this is something that he's had some experience with himself. Brother Gigi, are you there? I've had him waiting for a while, so he might have stepped away. Um, but this is the experience we're having. That's what we're looking at. When I talk about Africana studies in many ways in the academy, this should be a refuge for black students. And in too many instances, it isn't. Now, that isn't to say that the field is invalid or that there's no one there. You, it, it really comes down to, in many ways, the individual professors and the willingness they have to engage this absence. So if you are a black male looking to go into the field, it's a question of finding people who are willing to support that. And there are people that are willing. You just can't take it for granted that they're there the way one might have been able to decades ago. I couldn't say. I lucked out when it came to Dr. Little, my mentor, but that wasn't a common thing. Not a common thing. Um, yeah, I think Gigi stepped away. Uh, so hit me in the, uh, the back chat, Gigi, when you get back, if you can hear this. All right. So this is what I'm talking about. How exactly can we get to the point where we're able to focus on black males without it being demonized and villainized? How do we do that? How do we do it and have it be received? Despite people have learned to ignore it. That's what we're looking at. This is why I said uh, I entitled this and I pulled the title from a, a private conversation I was having with um, BGS. And we just he just kind of said it arbitrarily and we started laughing. He said, all roads lead back to the black gynocracy. And I said, you know what? That is exactly the theme I'm trying to get at in my show this week. If you want to advance, this is what's required of you. Right? To emphasize a gynocracy. Okay, hold on. What's Hello? up, man? Hey, What's man. going on, man? man. How you I doing? apologize for uh, what went down earlier with the audio. No, no, no problem. It's all good. Uh, man, just uh, nursing my uh, my mouth after oral surgery, but I'm good, though. What's going on? Well, man, we we, we dealing with Africana studies. We're dealing with the academy. And we're dealing with the acceptable misandry that has become, I think, a hallmark of black academic work. And I thought, who could I speak to that might have something to say about this? And um, yeah, yeah, you know, 
I had to come to you, man. Any thoughts on the subject, brother? Yeah, it's tragic, though, because, uh, I mean, when you trace the steps of the origin of uh, African-American studies, I mean, it, start, it started from black power uh, politics and uh, students in California demanding that they be, uh, you know, exposed to a curriculum that, you know, let them know about the injustices that they had suffered from and, you know, people who look to ameliorate the conditions that black folks found themselves in, you know, it went from that to, uh, you know, you know, this kind of like East coast, uh, you know, elitist assimilationist, uh, you know, take on African-American studies. And then it went from that to, uh, the interpolation of women and gender studies into African-American studies via the intersectionality, uh, you know, uh, postulization that, you know, women don't just experience racism, qua racism, they experience it, racism, class, gender, sexuality, and, you know, uh, ableness. And, and so uh, here we are now. I mean, this is just, <laughs> it's, it's just, it's a way to continuously X people who are considered to be, uh, you know, part of the patriarchy or whatever, you know, Manichaean dualism you, you create and you want to create the evil side of it mm-hmm. <laughs> and mm-hmm. attach it to, uh, you know, uh, what arbitrary group you may. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, uh, and this is what black men are resisting against. But in the academy, it's difficult to do because everywhere around you, everyone accepts this 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 thesis that, yeah, if you're a woman and you're black, then you're doubly oppressed or, you know, that somehow there's a unique form of oppression that you experience that no one else does. But black men keep getting killed. Well, that was or they keep that, finding themselves homeless exactly. or they keep finding themselves, you know, incarcerated or they keep finding, you know, males, black males keep finding themselves going from the school to the prison pipeline or, you know, they find themselves in all of these situations in which you know other demographics don't find themselves you know like black women don't find themselves as homeless as black men not to say that there is none but but it's not at the rate that you find it among black men you don't see the same illiteracy rates you don't see the same levels of incarceration you don't see the same kinds of homicide uh you know uh commitment and uh victimization you just don't see it so um, it's, well, it's, uh, it's let, as if let me, let me add to that real quick though that's one of the things that Athena Matua recognized she's the author of uh, uh, was it Progressive Black Males uh, no damn it I used her book for years how do I forget the title uh, but she was she. Uh, I'm going to pull it up but she was actually um, you know uh, an intersectionalist for a good period of time and when she actually started to do the research. Oh, damn it. I didn't even see who. Man, my computer blipped up. I didn't even see who that. There it is. WG. Appreciate the support. Anyway, uh, when uh, when she actually came out, her book was uh, Progressive Black Masculinities. That's right. And she was doing work on intersectionality when she actually started to look at the data. You know, and this is in line with Darren Hutchinson and a few others. She realized that the argument didn't hold. And so she developed a whole different area of multi-sectionality to try and account 
for the extent to which intersectionality didn't apply to black men, right? And yet, when we start to see it, even within these departments where you have black males who are being kept out of a, out of positions, like whether they're chairing departments or when they're actually maligned and kept out by women who are working in tangent to one another, you really start to ask, you start to have to step back and say, well, what exactly is happening here? exactly is going on there's nothing that we've been prepared for what are your thoughts no, because we had we had no understanding of what actually was occurring i mean these women decided that they were at war with men yes. period yes. <laughs> and, and yes. men didn't see that and men still don't see that they still don't see it they just refuse to look it in the face they just don't like it, it doesn't matter if you're a black nationalist it doesn't matter if you're uh, an Afrocentric. It doesn't matter if you're, you know, a nation of Islam, brother. It doesn't matter where you fall within the scope and the range of black life. It doesn't matter. They're in war with you. They declare war. Yeah. I mean, you should see some of the things that they say. Like, I mean, you know, kill men now. Ask me how. Uh, it doesn't matter what race or what class they're from. They're all bastards and they need to be uh you know restricted they need to be uh drained of their power because the the the, the ominous and the evil patriarchy is what creates life uh, a life of uh discomfort and uh oppression and domination for women this i mean <laughs> hey bro like it, but, but these people don't want to look it in the face they don't want to stare it in the face. Uh, and I'm going to tell you how it happened, bro. I can't speak for African-American studies. I, you know, African-American studies started with students protesting right. and, uh, you know, uh, entering into offices and spaces in the academy and demanding, you know, the administration and the faculty to give them the kind of programs that they, they wanted. Okay, so it started off radical. But in you know uh, women and gender studies, man, I, as far as I'm concerned, it was a bunch of white men who said, "Look, we're going to give the darkies and we're going to give the women their own programs, okay? And uh, we're going to pretty much leave them unobstructed and allow them to do their thing. We're not going to bother them. Uh, they're going to have their own spaces and wings in humanities or social sciences departments." Uh, we're not going to interfere with them in what they do. Okay. Uh, they're here for diversity purposes and uh, everybody else do what you do. Don't worry about them and leave them to their own devices. Okay. <laughs> mm -hmm. But increasingly, I mean, you know, their influence and power has stretched throughout the, you know, the university itself uh, to the point where, you know, they've taken over human resources departments. They've taken mm -hmm. over administration positions. Uh, you know, the, the government has, you know, come out with acts uh, and titles, uh, you know, <laughs> that, you know, that, in policy that basically, uh, you know, demonstrates that they need to be given a seat at the table. Uh, and, and all the while, you know, the, 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 the in most injurious thing to black men is, damn, how all of a sudden did the people who were whipped, enslaved and lynched the most, all of a sudden, in collusion with the very same motherfuckers <laughs> who did all this shit. Like, how does that occur? Like, 
So me and Ali scratching their heads like, how the fuck did it come? Excuse me for cursing, bro. But mm. I mean, you have to understand the level of frustration that men are, are dealing with. Like, okay, wait a minute. You mean so I'm a, a, a person who belongs to a demographic of people who were killed the most, lynched the most, enslaved the most, disrespected the most, but now I'm part of the very thing that committed all of those atrocities against me. I seek to uphold or imitate that which sought to destroy and enslave me. Mm -hmm. So you have to keep me in check, not based upon what you can prove or demonstrate empirically, but what you say our ambitions will be if we are to any degree able to flourish, function, and to thrive as any other human being will be able to do. Mm. And this is the important part, you know, like uh, of Curry. It's like this, this, this mimetic, imitative ambition uh, claims being made about us. Like we, we want to reproduce white patriarchy. And it, like, come on, man. Like black men are some of the most progressive people. We we uh you know we take care of our kids. We don't say that women should be in the house making sandwiches and <laughs> be barefoot and pregnant. You know I mean <laughs> making sandwiches. <laughs> I know it sounds stupid, but I mean this this is how they're characterizing us and what they say we are in terms of you know our progressiveness. That we there is none in us. That that you know, if 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 black men were to ascend and to have you know parity with white men, that we would reproduce the same patriarchy that white men did in the, the terrible way that they have. But there's no evidence that even men throughout the the world have done the same thing that white men have done. <laughs> I mean, maybe I'm confused about it. I mean, did, did the Africans do exactly what white men have done? I mean, did they create like a, a scheme? to create colonies all throughout the entirety of the known world? No, but here's, here's, here's one of the things we, we, have, we have to deal with um, in terms of how this conversation happens. When you talk about black patriarchy, a lot of what will happen is people will use individual anecdotes to account for something that's supposed to be systemic. So when you ask your question, is this something black men did or even African men? What, what will often happen is they'll take a specific person who abused somebody, raped somebody, beat somebody, and that's supposed to stand in for black men as a whole. And many Man. of us are not prepared to actually, you know, look at that and say, wait a minute, that's an anecdote. Give me the statistics. Give me the data on that. And they don't and care about the data. They don't care about the statistics. See, this is. Right now, they're engaged in what they can, I would consider to be confirmation bias, man. All this shit is, is a group of people that cre have created a non-academic discipline. It's a political discipline is what it is, uh, you know, that has, uh, it's primary ideological, uh, not really based on, you know, in empirics as much as it's based in, you know, a certain uh, political orientation. And, uh, It's been allowed to to to, to uh, gain weight, and now it's you know it's a monster now. And uh, so so how do you deal with it now? It's out of control now. It's everywhere now, and nobody has the intellectual and conceptual 
uh, tools to actually, uh, you know, go against it. And if you do go against it, oh man, be prepared to hear uh, the uh, or the field of backlash. So you got men who, you know, have to, you know, basically tuck their tails and, uh, you know, duck their heads and say, you know, okay, well, you're right. I'm, you know, I'm a bad man. I have the potential to be evil. <laughs> like, dude, you, I taught an AFAM one, uh, one year. And, uh, you know, in, in philosophy, in the philosophy department, they didn't tell us what to teach. I mean, they were like, okay, you can teach whatever you want. Like literally, like you are, are perfectly autonomous. You can, you can teach whoever and however you want. You want to teach uh, iceberg slim, <laughs> You know, you can teach Iceberg Slim. We don't give a damn. We're not monitoring you like that. I went to AFAM. They were like, okay, well, you got to teach Kimberly Crenshaw. You got to teach, uh, you know. It's a religion. Audrey Lord. You got to teach. Yes. You, I mean, they were like, you have to teach, uh, you know, uh, black trans culture. And uh, I'm like, damn, I got to do all this. I ain't gotta but, do this with my. But there's another part to this, though. When we like, when because you, you're talking about what happens in the classroom, which is more than valid. But I'm also looking at who gets to graduate. Do you know how many graduate students reach out to me from across the country and ask me to sit on dissertation committees, master's thesis committees, because they're worried that they can't actually talk about black men without some level of administrative defense. Right. In other words, they have panels that are that and the only people they have to choose from are, are hardcore feminists that will not allow them to study black males unless done so from this kind of standpoint that we're talking about, this misandric standpoint. So I get brothers that reach out to me. But here's the other twist. I also get brothers that reach out to me to tell me how they've been kicked out of graduate school. Because their their, their interests in terms of their research is not supported. And this is after coursework. Arbitrarily. Oh, that's some that. bullshit. You can't no, you can't do that, man. That's a lawsuit. That's but I mean, right. you know, that, if you can I feel that's a lawsuit. Hmm? But if that's especially if you can afford to levy one, but you're talking about a lot of brothers coming out of very poor circumstances, and their big issue at that point is if I'm out of grad school, how am I gonna eat? Where am I gonna stay? Right. And this is of course pre-pandemic. But these are the kind of brothers that are reaching out to me to tell me, yeah, two years ago I was kicked out. Or nobody would support my dissertation or my thesis, you know. And it's it's it, this is the, but these are the unspoken stories that nobody wants to talk about, and the real punishment that they're enduring is for not espousing the feminist line. And they're not even opposing it; they're just researching and are, they're interested in researching areas that pertain to black male life outside of the parameters of what's considered in vogue, and they get no support. And this has everything to do with who's in the room. This is why I talked about the number of faculty and where it becomes important. Because if black men aren't faculty and they're not pre present and there's not a proliferation of, of areas that black men are willing to engage in that allow for students to engage research on black men from a variety of standpoints that stand, may stand outside of feminist approaches, what you get is a narrowing of the field and a religiosity to what's considered acceptable. And I think that's where we are right now. I think feminism has become such a, an entrenched religion. This is why I talked about all the different areas where we're seeing a hyper focus on women and girls from a feminist standpoint, institutionally, materially, in terms of policy, 
you know, in the in, in the classroom systemically, we're seeing this major shift because it's almost become like a religion unto itself. That's what I'm seeing. It's it's yeah. definitely a religion, but it's look, put, put it this way. I don't know if you ever heard of uh Thomas Kuhn. Uh, but he's an American philosopher uh, of science, and he wrote a book called The Structure of Scientific Revolutions, okay? And uh, I don't know if you ever heard of him, but he came up with the idea of a paradigm shift, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so I know you've heard of the, the, the idea of a paradigm shift. Right now, what we find ourselves in is a particular paradigm. Okay. Uh, but, but what he says is, I mean, the, the, the general view that Kuhn has is, okay, Science takes place in, you know, a piecemeal way uh, and nobody really actually uh, rocks the boat or shakes the structure. Uh, it's just commonly accepted that, you know, whatever discipline uh, you're in, that scientific work takes place in a particular kind of way and the assumptions and the ideas contained within the research method of that particular discipline, uh, discipline is are accepted globally, okay? But what mm -hmm. then happens is you start to get crises when anomalies and when uh, you know various theories don't uh, corroborate uh, uh, data or don't you know match up to what, what's happening in the world, and, and the theory can no longer adequately explain phenomena. So that's mm -hmm. a crisis. So then what you get is a scientific revolution, which is a paradigm shift. Okay, mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. now we're in the we're right now. Intersectional feminism is the paradigm, and people are pointing out anomalies, which is leading to a crisis. And eventually, there needs to be a paradigm shift. But the political will is not there, and mm -hmm. this this happens in any discipline whatsoever. Though I mean, uh, but here I, I think it's going to be even more difficult. To to uh, uh to create the paradigm shift because this this is a science. Mm -hmm. This is just this is just philosophy, bro. You know though this is this is this is not this has no bearing on science. What the fuck so ever, man. This is legal scholarship yeah. and social scientific. Uh, it's not even social science. It's to be quite honest, it's just philosophy. Mm. And uh, not to knock philosophy, but I know its weaknesses. I know its strengths and its weaknesses, but you mm. just can't say, okay, well, I'm going to split human beings into two kinds. You got males and you got females from the male uh, uh, section of humanity. That's where the evil comes from, from the women, uh, the female side of humanity. That's where all the sugar and spice comes from. So uh, the, the, the evil men have created uh oppression and domination, exploitation and violence for the, the great and beautiful, nice women. And so now women need to do as much as they can to try to obstruct men uh, from coming to the fore because men all, always do what they've always done, which is commit acts of violence, oppress and exploit and dominate, you know, women. Dude, this, this is bullshit, bro. This, this is like, this is like the same shit that they decry themselves because men did it at one time. Okay, so the, like the, if you look at Pythagoras' theory about women, he said the same thing about women. That, okay, men are rational, women are emotional, uh, women are malevolent, men are good. Uh, you know, and, and it's the same thinking, but it's just they flipped the script. 
and they frame the narrative in an entirely different way. Now, not to mention that other people from other cultures don't even think like this. Okay, they have more balanced approaches to passive and uh, active energy, yin yang, maat. I mean, there's a whole different kind of way uh, way of thinking uh, uh, that that applies to passive and, and active energy and right. masculine and feminine energy in, in 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 cultures. But for some reason, man, we 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 have this dualism right here. And it's gonna stay. It's gonna stay until people actually begin to rock the boat. I mean, you are rocking the boat. Curry's rocking the boat. Ron, uh, Ronald Neal's rocking the boat. Uh, there's a whole bunch of other people who are actually rocking it, uh, and who are beginning to admit, begrudgingly, that uh, yeah, yeah, black men have it really hard. <laughs> and this narrative that you, you know, the narrative that you're pushing. It's not entirely accurate. I mean, uh, so there are many people who are coming out who are starting to question the legitimacy and the validity of this theory. Uh, um, but people, are, I mean, it's it's the it thing right now. So people are hesitant and reticent to challenge it uh, for fear that they're going to be, uh, you know, assumed to be misogynist or racist. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but but, bro, black men are looking at this and shaking their head like. You say I'm privileged? <laughs> I, it's, it's like uh, your boy uh, Blade. Every time he pops up, somebody makes a donation. He smiles. <laughs> it's like that. It's like really? That's what you think? That you think I'm privileged? Like really? But what you said a moment ago, though, when you were talking about this this paradigm shift, you know, I think is important because uh, the, the the kind of oppositional mannequin setup. Where you know, if you emphasize hetero males, you're 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 damn near in mimetic alignment with white men, and 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 on the other side, the just side, you have this link between feminism and queer studies, right? You know, I was I was having a conversation with a brother who has one foot in Africana and one foot in queer studies, and he said something I never I'll never forget. He started talking about the ways in which, even as a queer brother, writing about black men. He said, there's only a certain type of queer man you can write about. He said, you got to be, and these are his words. He said, you pretty much got to be flaming. But if you want to talk about the experiences queer men have with being beaten by police, uh, you know, pulled over for, for arbitrary things and, and, and hyper fine just because of, he was saying, basically, you know, there are plenty of black men who are queer that nobody knows is queer and they're treated like black men. And as a queer black male scholar, if you want to write about that in relation to queer men, he was saying it wasn't really acceptable. He said the only way you could really write even about queer black men was to hyper fetishize them much the way white liberal you know, academics and, and black feminist academics approve of. But when you want to actually talk about them as black men in association with black maleness or the black male experience, that that's downplayed. So when you talk about a paradigm shift, it, it, we're talking about, you know, when we talk about when I push black masculinism, there are linkages that most people wouldn't imagine exist across different ideologies, the different fields, but they're not allowed to be explored because of this, you know, religious kind of idea around intersectionality's focus on black women and, and LGBTs being the most oppressed group, but only a certain slice of what is supposed to be acceptable about black women and LGBTs and men on the other side of that fence. That whole paradigm shift is going to be necessary 
to break that dynamic down so you can actually have people study what they're interested in so we can create new knowledge about what actually is going on in the world. That has to be broken yeah, yeah. down. Yeah, you know what? Uh, you know, some people are going to be against it, like you said. Uh, they're going to resist it with every fiber of their being. Right. Uh, you know, they're, they're, they're going to be... Uh, I mean, they're going to resist it, bro, um, it, it, because it's going to challenge... Their positionality is going to is going to challenge their orientation to the world is is going to challenge, uh, you know, the, the things they teach or what they consider to be knowledge. And so and then it's going to it's going to challenge their, their class structure, right. Right. which nobody wants to do at the current moment, man. Look, I, I did a show earlier today, man, and. Uh, I don't know if you had the opportunity to hear any of it at all, but I mean, the. the this is about power and money, man. This is yes. about jobs and resources. Yeah. But we need to, but, but they act like mm -hmm. it's about it's they act as if this is about liberation and politics. No. Right. This this is not about that, bro. All, all this is is about money. This yes. is money and resources. Yes. And who gets what yes. uh from white yes. folks? Who's able to extract what resources from white folks? Yes. Okay. Uh <clears throat> and you know, the the more we uh Admit that, you know, the better off we'll be. But nobody wants to admit it. Mm -hmm. uh, but but at some point we have to start uh, just uh, just keeping it real, man. Like it's about money and resources, and and who has access to it. And black men have never been able to have access comfortably with resources before somebody lays the claim that he doesn't deserve it. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, and that's the that's the issue we're facing. Everybody else has a term before us. It's like being, it's like being uh, in the desert, and everybody is getting a sip of water, except for the guy who's got scurvy and his lips are blistering from having been there for forty days and forty nights. <laughs> <laughs> the one that got there, the one that got there an hour ago is part right. Yeah, I mean, this guy's like, I mean, he's dying of thirst, man. Like, really in need of some uh, some relief. And then everybody else, man, is, is like, hey, wait a minute, dude. You, you're all, you don't really need this, you know? <laughs> I'm a little parched. Let me get the, the majority of that. Glass. I'm a little more parched than you are, sir. I mean, theoretically. <laughs> and, and it's like, what, what, man? So, so. <laughs> So, but, but but the imitative but the imitative piece is is fuel for the fire and the abusive the, the charge of, uh, the charges of abuse and malevolency uh, are there. But but the thing is, they never point to themselves in the pathology and the uh, malevolence that they put forth in the, you know out here. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I don't like, bro. You know, I I don't like how. They minimize their own pathology, uh, you know, exacerbate ours, you know, through all of these narratives and these anecdotes. And, uh, you know, we end up being the boogeyman. They end up being the damsels. And uh, they, they end up reproducing white supremacy. In, in my viewpoint, man, if anybody wants to be ambitious in relation to whiteness, it's black women, bro. Mm. But nobody wants to admit that. To admit that would be to commit a sin. Mm. 
But they're the ones reproducing whiteness, not us. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, how, where do you want to start with this? From appearance? From hair? Uh-oh. <laughs> I mean, like, uh -oh. how far do you want to go with this? To makeup? To, to, to the way they dress? Mm-hmm. Like, if anybody wants to to be like a white person, it's one of them, man. They damsel like them. Mm -hmm. They want to live in a world like them. They uh, they've acquiesced to power structures like them because at the end of the day, they're not challenging the white male power structure. This is the funny thing about all of this. None of this actually challenges white male power structures. You want to see what the relationship is with white male power structures? This is a, uh, I put this on Facebook. Uh, I think it was last night. I was heading out the door um, and this came on and I said, you know what? Let me, let me get a snapshot of this real quick. Uh, this is from, let's see if I can enlarge this a little bit. This is from uh, the HBO show In Treatment. There you go. All right. This is the idea. Black therapist, the show is based on her. Black therapist, you know. And um, yeah. An identification with Zaddy. This is where it goes. This is the uh, this is the pinnacle of masculinity as far as what's represented. And yet, if you start to talk about black men with any other group of women, it's a problem. But somehow, when this this happens, either in media or um, you know, especially if you talk about it with celebrities, it's acceptable. It's applauded more than acceptable. It's applauded. It's applauded. When you talk about Meghan Markle. You talk about uh, the the what's her name? Um, I always get Venus and Serena mixed up. Y'all know who that. Serena Williams. Serena. You know what I mean? It it then becomes a, a cry for um, what you call it. It's a success. You know. But that's where that's where that's where the idea is headed. That's where the idea it, it goes. That this Zaddy worship <laughs> is is liberatory. It's liberatory. Hey man, hey look, bro. All I can say is, man, the truth is stranger than fiction, man. It, 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 and and to me, you take a group of men who are subjected to the most cruel treatment, and then you turn around and say, well. He's in collusion with the very people who subjected him to centuries of, of, of toil and, and, and violent punishment. That, you know, if we, we lift the people who were subjected to that up, we reproduce the very same conditions which gave rise to their oppression in the first place. And then they say, well, we're oppressed. We're even more oppressed than you because we're women. And then, you know, black men have to be left scratching their heads like, Wait a minute, you mean black men were less oppressed than white women? You mean white women who owned slaves and who managed households? Who, you know, like, I'm like, hold on, wait a minute. And then you got black women who regurgitate these talking points. This is why I think this is intellectual warfare, man. It is. I'm just I'm just keeping it 100, man. This is like Jacob Carruthers. I don't know if you ever read that book, man. Hell yeah. Intellectual Warfare. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yeah, this yes. is what this shit is, bro. Yeah, and this, this is, is why, why Bill Burr said, this is why yeah. Bill Burr said generals should be studying this shit. Like, how is it possible, man, that a group of women mm -hmm. 
who were as violent and who were as evil and malevolent as their men could all of a sudden claim that they were victims and that all the emphasis has shifted away from the true targets of the oppression to a group of people who actually benefited from the fucking oppression to begin with. But this is why when I called out earlier, my problems with certain films like Lovecraft country series or Tyler Perry's, the family that prays, they propagate this idea of this feminist Shangri-La, right? We even saw it uh, with the, uh, what's the Madam CJ Walker film that came out last year, right? At the end of it all, there's going to be this magical alignment of black women, white women, and, and LGBTs, and they're going to live, you know, next to the Rockefellers in a mansion and 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 ride off into the sunset. And the missing piece to this that 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 secures their advancement into enlightenment and in pure justice is the removal of black males. This is the dynamic, and I'm wondering yeah. who the hell sees this shit. I'm, that's the yeah. thing that gets. You know, because when I go to these conferences and I listen to scholars break this stuff down, it's interesting to see how they'll tap dance around black men unless they're supporting the depiction of us as Mr. from Color Purple. We are perpetually Mr. from Color Purple. This is what when Tommy's talking about black men being considered mimetically white men, he's talking about Miss Mr. from Color Purple, who somehow supersedes slavery in his abuse. Somehow. And that becomes all black men. That's what we're dealing with. Yeah. But look here, man. Look. Women created communes of their own, man, in the 60s and 70s and shit. You know, they, they already tried that experiment, bro. Mm. And uh, you got to ask yourself, well, why, why are they not still, if they were such safe places and safe havens, why do they not? Why do they not? They not still exist. Why do they right. not still, uh, you know, have? Uh, I mean, to some degree, they have like remnants of these places, like women's battered shelters and shit like that. But these women, man, went to communes and they live with one another, and then they ended up leaving them. Okay, because there's nothing ideal in nature, bro. Like even women are assholes. <laughs> I mean, if you hang around women long enough, you're going to find some women that are assholes and that are violent, vindictive, and manipulative, bro. This is just how nature is. It's, it is what it is. <laughs> I mean, aren't some of the highest DV race among lesbian women? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. So, I mean, this idea that you can escape evil by escaping one group of persons is, has been bullshit from the beginning. But... <clears throat> You know, this is strange, though, man. Uh, you know, and, and the good thing about it is is that there are people who are willing to say something about it, even though there are not enough people stepping forward and saying as much as they could about it. Um, yeah. I just, you know, all I know is African-American studies is not what it was when it first started. It started off as black power. Mm -hmm. And uh, you had a lot of brothers like there ain't no and there are no Malefe Kete Asante's uh in, in in African American studies programs anymore. Man, they just let they they like okay Afrocentricism? Oh hell no. Well <laughs> it, the, I mean you might have some people doing that, but I mean I, it's gotta be few it's few and far in between, bro. It's, no, it's that the common practice now is the deference 
to feminism. That's the thing, right? You have to demonstrate it. You got to kiss the ring or else even a, a burgeoning career for a grad student is considered irrelevant. You know what I mean? This is what we're at. The power dynamic of it and its impact on just which ideas you got to dis- you can discuss. I mean, this is kind of the issue that I'm seeing now, right? And you got young males going through graduate school that basically have to pretend or at least completely eliminate any possibility of seriously studying black male issues on a, on a, on a realistic front. <clears throat> they have to do so filtering it through feminist theory. And that's, a problem. And that's, that's the power of education, though. It shapes minds and it yeah. shapes practices. And it yeah. shapes habits. And these are the practices and the habits that these groups want. And it, just think who benefits from this the most. White men and women benefit from this shit the most. Because you create the conditions in which you can continue to pathologize black men, which they've been doing from day one. This is what you get to do with this. You get to continuously pathologize black men. And it's unfortunate, man, that you got a group of educated black women who are doing the handiwork of white supremacy. That's what it's what it is to me. I just hate to say that, man. I hate to say that there are hopefully it's unwittingly, but I'm beginning to think it's not unwittingly now. It's just like, fuck it. I'll step over your corpse, your dead body. Uh, I'll step over your incarcerated body in order to get to my job and my, my house in the Hamptons or some shit, or my beachfront property. I'll use whatever it is that I got to get what I want. And if I can use this black female body in order to get more and more, extract more and more resources by guilting and shaming other groups of persons, even my own group, I'll do it. And that's unfortunate, bro, because they, they already they already know what's going on. Mm-hmm. People aren't stupid, man. Even Bell Hooks knows like these people know what's going on. Right. Mm-hmm. But but some of the. The first people that'll come out and try to prevent initiatives for uh, for black men from emerging, or white women and white men, they'll be uh, like, just look at the legal scholars and how they'll come out and say, "Oh well, you know, we know black men need something, but this overlooks girls and it creates problems related to sexism and preferential treatment for males." Mm-hmm. Like, dude. How much more of this shit do we have to hear? Like, we we have to hear this nonsense, man, incessantly, and nobody wants to say anything about it. I mean, the the first thing they do is they step up and they condemn, you know, black black men for this shit. Like, dude, if black women were going through what black men went through, there'd be some sort of fucking foreign aid for them, man. They have parachutes <laughs> coming out of the sky with goodies yeah, and all kind of, you know, they, they have tents and shit and boxes oh, wow. and all kind of shit for them, bro. If, if, if any group of people were going going through this, man, we need asylum somewhere, bro. That's Damn. how I feel. Damn. Black men need asylum somewhere. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. <laughs> I mean, like, the most homeless, the most incarcerated, the most inc- uh, 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 the lowest literacy race die earlier than everybody else. The, like the least wealthy. It's like the, how many? How far you want to go? Go with the list. Like I'm not saying this because I'm trying to make excuses for black men to be 
average or anything like this. I'm just saying, damn, dude, this is what we're undergoing, bro. Yeah, and nobody any, gives a shit. Any other group would be requesting asylum and would like to get it. You're absolutely right. You're absolutely man, right. Uh, which country you think we should go to? Because this shit right here, man, I'm ready to vacate the premises, man. <laughs> this shit right here, you can't even. <laughs> It's a cool place to live, but golly, man, I'm like Karen's one, man. You got brothers putting cities and countries in the chat, man. <laughs> man, I'm like, where where can we go, bro? Like Vancouver, you don't want to go there. It's even the worst feminist haven in this place. You know what I'm saying? But uh, yeah, man, I, I don't I don't know, man. I this place, man. The narratives. And the and the and the framing is destroying us, and it's creating wars amongst us that have no basis in anything real. Yeah, yeah. And this is the this is the most fucked up part about it. And that's why I showed the Negro Women article, man. How you know in nineteen eighteen, black women were like, I don't want to go work for white folks anymore. Mm. My husband makes enough money to maintain the household. We're good over here. I'm good. Mm. So they told the white woman, I mean, the black women, look, we're about to create an ordinance that's going to make your ass go to work. Okay? You're about to go to work because uh, Miss Ann, the white Becky and Karen need somebody to help them with the laundry and the cooking in the house. And I just, you know, basically, they don't like they don't like Becky's cooking. They don't like the way she keeps the house clean. We can get that nigger girl over here. She'll clean it up real nice and cook some real good chicken, too. Then you get to pop her off, you know, somewhere probably, you know, behind the closed doors or something like that. You got a little concubine right there. <laughs> and it no. works out for everybody, man. I hate to say that, man. Like, we got to start telling the truth about this shit, bro. You know? Uh my goodness. <laughs> but we don't tell the truth about it, bro. So they made they made these women go to work. Right. And nowadays, these women want to go to work. I mean, like, they want to vehemently demonstrate their agency by means of competing with men with work. Mm. And not to, you know, I'm not saying that women don't you know, have a right to work or shouldn't work or have their own money or whatever. I'm not, that's not the claim I'm making. But what mm. the claim I am making is how could it possibly be that, you know, black women who've always worked and who eventually, you know, got into a position where they didn't have to work because they had men who were actually able to compete with, with white men. Mm. They, White folks were like, I don't care if your husband making a lot of money or not, your black ass still coming to work because we need somebody to, to cook our meals and to wash our clothes. And Miss Ann ain't got to do that. Okay. You right. got to do that. Right. <laughs> now they want to do, now they are running to go work for white folks. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Why y'all running to go work for white folks? Why? And then you're competing with men to do it. This is what the academy is about. This is what feminism is about. Let's not get it twisted. It's about jobs, resources. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. And I'm glad you put it that way. 
because that's what I said earlier in terms of uh, there being kind of a, a silent war um, that's been waged on on black men that we are not prepared for. We hadn't been we hadn't thought about. But alongside that silent war, uh, this is a ploy for power. It is a push for power at the expense of black males and at the expense of the, the family. And really, in many ways, you know, the social dynamic has fallen apart and nobody cares. But black men are, are really unprepared for it. Walking into these spaces is like walking into a wood chipper and we keep doing it and we're not ready for the outcome of it. And if you're talking about the upliftment of the black community, nine times out of 10, you are the, the least prepared for the ways in which feminism uses chivalry against you. We are not prepared. We have not, no, we have not, it, it's not part of our dynamic to expect gender to be weaponized against us in that way. And every, at least every two weeks, I run into a brother who lets me know he can't, he can't figure out what's going on. What's what, why it happened, what's happening. And I have to explain the same thing over and over again. Gender has been weaponized against your chivalry and you've not been taught to see it that way. That's the, Dude, that, that's usually what it comes down to. Man. If, if see, this is, this is the thing that, uh, this is the thing that frustrates me about these guys, right? It's especially the guys who read the black nationalist in the Academy. Come on, bro. All you got to do is read the Convahee river collective statement. That's all you got to do. And they'll tell you they rejected nationalism. They rejected it. They said, Oh no, we don't want this. We don't want this because right. It's going to be oppressive to women. Mm. They don't want that, man. So, okay, if you don't want this, well then, okay. You know what that what became? Now? You know what that became? BF1. Black woman first. Yeah. Black I female. mean, they tell you, uh, bro, if they sit here and tell you, if they say, look, we are cutting off away from black men. And we're looking after our interests first. If they tell you that shit, they mean it, bro. Yeah, they they got a Bible, man. They, they, mean it, a, they mean it most when they don't say it at all. But yes, you're absolutely right. Man, they already put this shit in the book, man, and let you know where we are with this, bro. Hmm? They say they want to be progressive with black men, but you, they really don't. They don't, man. Because they say they want to have solidarity around the fact of race. But they don't, man. So they're, they're creating the BF1. They're creating that, man. Black feminists first. Black women first. Yeah. Like, uh, you know, fuck my daddy. Fuck my son. Fuck my brothers. I, whatever random black woman that exists, her first before, uh, before them. Mm -hmm. Like, then, really? And then from there, women first. Man, that's crazy, bro. Hey, look, it, it just it is what it is. But hey, but but the black nationalists don't believe it. They don't believe it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I we're, that, we're not prepared for it. You know, a lot of this has been socialized so deeply. You have people who um, who operate along these lines that we're talking about and don't even really know it. That's the deepest part of it. You know what I mean? They funk. They, that's what I was saying earlier when I talked about the impact of Oprah. You're talking about people who don't even know 
what feminism is, and yet they have the rhetoric, they have the worldview. This is kind of what I'm saying. It's been socialized into the fabric of our worldview through media, through formal education, through a number of these different streams. And it's rewarded and incentivized materially from policy to grants to philanthropy. So you got people that believe that they're doing one thing in certain instances, and they're still supporting this narrative that ultimately alienates and underdevelops black males, and they don't know it. But then you also have a population that are very aware of it and don't care. And that's the problem. That's the issue. You know, like some of these women know that black men are getting the short end of the stick and just don't give a damn. It makes them money. Everybody's cool with it. And let's just keep doing it because it's it's money in denouncing black men. It's just money. It's bread there. Yeah, it's and always. Been. Go ahead. It's, it's it, There's money in making a black man look like a coon. A step and fetch it or to have his body in a corpse. It's just it's, it's money in that. Mm-hmm. It's money in making a black man a demon. That's why rap band sells like it does. You get some whole bunch of black men that's doing like ignorant shit. Everybody loves it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Everybody buys into it. If, if you see a black man with a gun in his hand with some do-rags on or something like that, it sells. You know, tattoos and shit like that, or you know, with no, definitely dreadlocks or gold teeth and shit. That's gonna sell, man. You know, every blue moon, I'll have one of these women reach out to me. And you know what usually spawns it? When, what that is when they have sons, and when they have sons, mm-hmm. who, and not 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 as soon as those sons are born, when those sons are at the precipice of fully experiencing black male life in a negative sense. That's when I'll hear. That's what I'll hear from them at most, at most, but that's what it takes. It actually takes someone uh, in their own nest, in their own uh, household. And, you know, maybe, maybe then, you know, but short of that, but um, any last thoughts, anything you want to put across on this? And I appreciate you coming in, man, especially after doing your own show. Y'all check out the Green Gorilla channel. Check out the show he just did just before this one, if you hadn't, haven't had a chance to check it out. But any last thoughts you want to lay out on this, brother? Man, African-American studies ain't what it used to be. It's, uh, it's uh, a whole bunch of uh, anti-black misandry shit now. <laughs> Avoid it. I hate to say that, bro. You know, look, I hate to say it. Avoid that stuff, man. Avoid it. Well, I would say this. Um, Unless you find academic scholars at your location that you can work with. Because trust me when I tell you, if you have a Gigi as your your committee chair or you know what I mean? Or or if he's on your thesis or whatever, that's going to be an entirely different experience. You know what I mean? Oh, for sure, for sure. But, so, but here's the thing, bro. I, I'm sorry to interject with you, bro. But look, man, I'm fortunate, man. Nobody, well, you know, outside of academia attacked me while I was doing my job, you know, and I, I'm pretty vocal. You know me, I really don't bite my tongue very much. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So, uh, mm-hmm. you know, if, if I feel like somebody is saying something wrong about black men, I'll say that sounds like some bullshit to me. I'll tell them, you know. You get you catch my drift, but mm-hmm. uh, I let everybody speak, man. Black yeah. lesbians, 
black boys, black women, girls, whatever. I let everybody have their view right. put out there on the table. We deserve the same treatment, man. Don't yeah. restrict our voices because it makes you feel uncomfortable. A lot of these people feel uncomfortable because they know they're doing some fucked up shit. They know this is about money and resources at our expense, and they know we're getting the, the shit in of the deal. They know this, bro. Mm -hmm. they, they are aware of this, man. There's too much data out here. They see our, our lives, man, in real time. These people know what the fuck we're going through. They just don't care, bro, a lot of these people. So if they don't care about us, we have to start taking and adopting the position that we don't care either. I'm sorry, man, but, it, you know, I, I hate to tell the black nationalists that, but your nationalism ain't going to add up to much without a family because that's the cornerstone of the nation. Well, hey, man, thank you for coming through. Thank you for dropping it. Much appreciated. Um, you have a good night, good brother. I will talk to you soon. All right? All right, man. Peace. All right, man. Look, y'all, this is why I was talking about BM1. You approach me with any idea that's supposed to be about uplifting, particularly, the, you know, black folk. That's what I filter it through. I don't care if it's nationalism, Pan-Africanism, ADOS. I filter it through. My first question is, where does this leave black men? Where are black men in the framework? That's how I encounter much of the material that runs across my desk. That's the first question I ask. And that's why I do Black Masculine's Daily News. Because for me, that's the question I'm trying to answer. How does this impact Black men? Where do Black men fit in this analysis? So I hope that helps. I hope some of you got something out of this. I really appreciate you taking the time to listen, support the channel, share the video, have discussions about it, and feel free to join into the comments and, and let us know what else needs to be said. All right. Y'all have a good one. It's much appreciated. Have a good night. Talk to you soon. I am here to tell you, brothers, we are not criminals by birth, perennial rapists, incapable intellects, man children, sperm donors, child support wellsprings, success objects, walking phalluses, ATM machines, lottery tickets, unintelligent henchmen, valueless assassins, pro bono mercenaries, unpaid bodyguards, interchangeable stepfathers, child discipline proxies, unpaid repairmen, workhorses, emotional tampons, or any other socially accepted dehumanizing stereotype. We are thinkers, inventors, innovators, leaders, fathers, and men. Embrace your humanity, know your worth, and extend your time, attention, and resources only to those who genuinely respect you. And remember, your worth is not defined by meeting other people's narcissistic and selfish and unrealistic needs. You define your worth. Peace.